Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 28th of June, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border, and Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondent. Well, we're going to get uh, we're going to kick straight off on the subject of health. Our children, of course, the most important thing in the world, but apparently babies are not safe, Debbie. And yes, and I do want to kick off with excess deaths. And I want to remind people of a story that we have run before with regards to children. This was in the Telegraph in May. And it's suggesting that there was a baby death cluster um, and that children are dying of unusual infections, including babies. There was one baby death. Now, we know that the WHO has already said that myocarditis in children and babies is on the rise. Why? This is very, very rare. So I decided to go and look and see what the British Heart Foundation say. Now, the British Heart Foundation say that every five minutes, someone's admitted to the UK uh, to a UK hospital due to a heart attack. Now, can I just remind you that the, B the BHF is a research charity, a research charity. And you've probably, many people have done lots of fundraising for the British Heart Foundation, marathons and coffee mornings, and they've got a whole network of charity shops as well up and down the country. So I thought I'd go and have a little look and see who was on the board of the trustees at the British Heart Foundation. And it didn't take me long to find some names that I was familiar with, including Professor Sir Munir Permahamid, who we've sp spoken about many times before. He is the chair of the Commission of Human Medicines, who advised the MHRA. And we see now that he has a specialist interest in cardiovascular. Um, the rest of the trustees, if anybody wants to go and have a look, you'll recognize names from the pharmaceutical companies, bio, biopharma companies, all of them are, 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 will be familiar names to you. But let's go and have a look at what they spend their money on and how much money they get in. And you'll be shocked to know that they have had a 148% rise in income. That's gone from 57 million to 142 million. So strong financial reserves. Where's all that money coming from? Is it coming from your coffee morning? Is it coming from your marathon? Uh, 410 million pounds current research portfolio. Now I can tell you, I've been into the British Heart Foundation's research portfolio, not one study for vaccine injuries, not one, but there is a study to extend the vaccine. So with 480 principal investigators, I wonder how many are for vaccine injuries, I suspect none. So let's go and look at the donors. Let's think big, as they say. And you can see a number of donors there, but in particular, I've marked there the uh, Masonic Charitable Foundation, there's Moondance, and there's the Rose Trees Trust. But you can see the research grants that they're giving to the universities are huge. All of this money that you're donating appears to be going to the universities. But what else are they spending it on, the British Heart Foundation? Well, they're spending it on virtual reality. So we've got the game of life here. Now, this is meant to create a, a VR, a virtual reality model of each individual heart. That's very uh, reassuring to know, isn't it? And then we've got Revive R which is this big campaign to support defibrillators being rolled out in the country pretty much everywhere. Why? 
But what else are the British Heart Foundation into? And it didn't take long to find that they're also roped into the sustainable goals and the sustainable progress. And they're talking about electric cars recycling through their shops, using, uh, you know, getting rid of plastic bags and bringing in recycling bins. So they're even involved in the sustainable process, progress. And who else is involved in the British Heart Foundation? Well, there's another familiar figure, Sir Patrick Vallance. Who better than to chair the Big Beats Challenge, which has had £30 million research grant for new treatments to halt, reverse or prevent conditions that cause sudden death. Now, let's not, let's not uh, forget that Sir Patrick Vallance was uh, instrumental for writing the 100-day mission, where everything gets rolled out very, very quickly. So I then went and looked at an article in The Guardian where it appears that health bosses are very concerned with the excess deaths and the excess numbers of heart disease that are happening now in, in the country. Well, who are these health bosses? So this is Dr. Sonia Babunarayan from the British Heart Foundation. So we're getting more than 500 deaths a week, people dying needlessly from heart disease, heart attacks and strokes. 96,540 extra cardiovascular related deaths since March 2020. So what's changed? Because if it's not COVID, because the, ne the next article you can see that it's app apparently the British Heart Foundation are saying, well, you've got to have your vaccine. It's really safe to have your vaccine. So can they explain the vaccine? Can, are they doing any research into the vaccine? And if we flip to the next slide, you can see that, again, the British Heart Foundation are very troubled about all of these deaths that are taking place. But it doesn't seem to be that anybody is taking any notice of the vaccine injuries. So then moving on again to the next slide, we can see these are the reasons. Well, it's not COVID. It's not the virus, according to the sun. It could be the NHS crisis. Or is it the virus? Well, what else could it be? Because some people are saying, no, we've, we've decided it isn't the virus. But actually, you know, it could be because you live near an airport. That could be the reason why you are at a higher risk of a heart attack. And if you don't live near an airport, then perhaps it's because it's a Monday. And apparently more heart attacks take place on a Monday. But what I found extremely concerning was the fact that we have been funding defibrillators all around the country for the last few years. And we've now invested another million pounds to get another a thousand defibrillators into the community. But even more concerning is that these defibrillators are going into schools. Why? Why do schools need defibrillators? This is uh, this has never been known in, in before. Children, young people don't have sudden cardiac arrests and suddenly collapse. And yet we see that the defibrillator agenda isn't just for secondary schools. I went and had a look at the gov.uk and this isn't just for secondary schools. This is for all schools and it includes nursery schools. It includes play schools. It includes um, preschools and primary schools. I mean, you know, when did we when did we need all these defibrillators in all of these schools? And these these defibrillators are going to be placed near sports um, halls and sports venues and 
I mean, I can't believe it. I can't believe that schools are each having one defibrillator. But now we found out that the secondary school program has been completed and schools don't have just one defibrillator. They have two defibrillators. Why? Why are we seeing this sudden rise in young deaths, in athletes dying? Why? Why aren't the British Heart Foundation investigating vaccine injury? Where is your money going to? That, well, you're asking, of course, all the right questions. Perhaps we should just throw an answer back that uh, nobody is looking into the safety aspects of the vaccine. And I find it incredible when you mention a name there, um, Dr. Pierre Mohammed, who was one of the key figures supposedly monitoring the safety of the nation. Uh, it appears that he is still not interested. Or is that unfair? Um, it's absolutely perfectly fair. I have contacted, as all of our regular audience will know, Professor Munir Permahamid many, many times. He does not accept that the vaccine is a causal effect of all the injuries that we're seeing now. And he's pretty much shut me down. OK, Debbie, thank you for that. Well, let's move on to the subject of Ukraine, a situation which seems to get worse every day. And uh, let's have a little look at uh, how the BBC is having to deal with the fact that the Ukraine counteroffensive is not making any ground. Here's the Institute for the Study of War Maps, which the BBC likes using. But the only thing we've got to show us what's happening on the front are these tiny little green dots. And of course, the BBC trying to hide the fact that there's no progress but what the public can now see is that the fighting is limited to the very, very edge of the Russian-held territory and the minimal uh, movement forward by the Ukrainian forces can only happen at huge cost. But the BBC really got into trouble here because uh, they're now saying that, uh, well, all that uncertainty surrounding President Putin's regime and a year and a half into a disastrous war, apparently for the Russians, although they are at the moment holding their ground and are not dying in the numbers of the Ukrainians. Uh, but this might feed the anxiety of those NATO countries who would prefer the war to end around the negotiating table. And of course, the BBC certainly does not want the war to end. Let's have a look at a little bit of a clip. This has um, come from Free Russia Channel from Michael. Thank you very much for the work you're doing. Uh, let's have a look at a little bit of his report with some really harrowing footage of what's happening to Ukrainian troops as they try and attack. It has also been reported that both Russians and Ukrainians are reinforcing this sector here near Lapkova and especially here near Arikhov. And we are sure to expect another Ukrainian push in this sector. Here I have a video for you of a tragically failed Ukrainian offensive in the general area of Arekhov. Unfortunately, I cannot show you the entire video because it is gruesome. There are people stepping on the mines, but I will show you what I can. So here you can see Bradley's that had struck the mine. It would seem that part of 37th Ukrainian brigade ran into a minefield. So here you can see they are attempting to save wounded Ukrainian soldiers that are located here. In fact, the worst part is they are still on the minefield. If you are to watch this video on your own, for which I recommend you to join my Telegram channel and see it there, there is a mine somewhere here. And when one of the soldiers will walk to assist these guys, this mine will explode into the face of this guy and blow up his leg. So here the soldier is attempting to get 
onto a Bradley. He is planting his gun to use as a platform and go over the mine. He knows there's a mine but not sure where exactly it is. Then the mine explodes. Again, I cannot show you the footage but seemingly he is okay. Here from far away you can see many wounded Ukrainian soldiers and a infantry fighting vehicle is attempting to save them. At some point there was an incendiary rounds shot in this general area. Well, really harrowing uh, footage there, which obviously uh, Free Russian Channel didn't show. We're not going to show. But the reality is that the Ukrainian attacks go on and on with massive casualties because NATO and the West want those attacks to happen. And if we just have a look at uh, this little bit of social media where somebody picking on the two US, uh, US senators, Graham and Blumenthal, uh, these are the war hawks. And we have a little bit of video footage here uh, where they're making a statement on uh, what happens if it goes nuclear, base basically. We're introducing a resolution today since the Senate resolution that says that if Russia or Belarus, or proxy of Russia, explodes a nuclear device inside of Ukraine to um, stop the counteroffensive or to try to break the will of the Ukrainian people, such an attack should be considered an attack on NATO itself. We're of the belief that a nuclear weapon <clears throat> unleashed in Ukraine would irradiate large portions of Europe where we have NATO allies. And why are we doing this? President Biden says threat of Putin using tactical nuclear weapons is real. And you, that's like the 20th story down. So with a sense of urgency, we're urging our colleagues here to get serious about what could happen in Ukraine. Moving the tactical nuclear weapons out of Russia to Belarus was unnerving and I think very provocative. The counteroffensive is moving slowly but steadily. They're looking for a break. They will commit the forces that have been trained uh, by the West, six or eight uh, regiments, thousands of well-trained, well-equipped forces will be put into the battle when they can exploit an opportunity. Uh, well, David, time to bring you in, because uh, if uh, we've got Americans who are desperate, it seems to me, to ramp the war up, are we fit to fight a war here in UK? Yes, this is uh, the subject of um, the recent speech at Rusi uh, by the head of the British Army. That's uh, General Sir Patrick Sanders. Uh, we see him here. Um, so what did he have to say? Well, I'm pulling out here from uh, the Army's own website the quotes that they thought were most outstanding. Uh, firstly, he said that Ukrainian bravery and sacrifice is buying us time, time to modernise, time to train ourselves, time to ensure that we are prepared. So I suspect that's not what the Ukrainians on the front line think they're fighting for, but that seems... Um, a somewhat cynical view of uh, the Ukrainian sacrifice. Um, General uh, Sir Patrick Sanders also says, he said, last year I said I was prepared to look at the structures of our army if I judged that it would make us better prepared to fight in Europe. That time is now. So we're talking about active preparations by restructuring what's left of the army for a war in Europe, a continental army. 
this has not been debated in Parliament. This has not been debated in the country. This is just happening. And the tone is urgent. He continues, there isn't a moment to lose. Uh, we must now take the same spirit of mobilisation, you know, like the language here, mobilisation and turn it towards transformation, the next steps in the reforms that started with Future Soldier. So we're going to reform our armed services, we're going to make them much more fit for the, the next war. We're actively preparing now. Uh, in the depths of his speech, which was uh, reproduced on the Army website in full, he said that uh, our armoured reconnaissance vehicles uh, came into service in 1973, our infantry fighting vehicle uh, Warrior in 1987, and Challenger 2 in 1998. These are rotary dial telephones in an iPhone age. He's saying they're massively out of date. He said, first we will think and fight differently. The initiation of Project WAVO and the, the release of the new land operating concept are important steps. However, there's no room for conceptual complacency. We must keep refining our theory of victory. This is obviously referring to internal discussions that are not really part of the public or political dialogue, and I think they should be. Um, those of you sceptics whether we can do this, I recommend you go to Warminster and see the Army's Experimental and Trials Group. You will witness the future of British land warfare, so we'll have to do some of that. I did go looking for Project Wavel on the Army's website. Didn't go very well. Um, there was a link, but uh, the Army's very sorry. They can't seem to find that page. Um, I managed to find a little bit of description of what Project Wavel was. It will define how the army best helps the nation win in competition and conflict. Competition and conflicts. This is hybrid warfare. Everything now seems to be war. We're now using the army in competition with other nations, which is an interesting idea, uh, operating at the heart of integrated joint coalition and multi-domain effort. So it's all about integrating it with other nations. Um, so that, that does imply giving up sovereignty. No discussion of that. Um, so that's, uh, that's where the British Army is just now, Brian. The word obscene quite a bit in recent news, and I find the idea that you want those uh, Ukrainian troops to die on the front line to buy us time to get our military in order, when in fact it's been our own government and the top tiers of the military which have destroyed it over the years. But let's sacrifice a few more Ukrainian lives. Well, back on the subject of Ukraine itself, um, let's just have a look at this uh, little video clip. We'll bring it up on screen. I'll have to uh, just talk a little bit as it plays. Hopefully it is going to play. But Lukashenko, Belarus president here, this was taken over a year ago, but he's shut down NGOs. And the BBC uh, reporter interviewing him is clearly getting quite upset uh, because, as he is saying, we've destroyed all your little structures, your NGOs that you've been paying for. We didn't touch the ones that were working for the good of the people of Belarus, uh, but we've got rid of the others. Uh, they're all going to be liquidated. Now, liquidated was the term used in the, tra uh, the translation. Um, but what he's saying is you smashed everything up here. So um, if we haven't liquidated them, those Western NGOs already will do so in the near future. Now, why is all of this so important? What this man was saying and the reason he was so angry? Well, we're back on the West subversion of Ukraine. And uh, what do we need to remind ourselves? Let's have a look at the uh, video clip of Victoria Newland talking and uh, praising herself and others for the work they did in those early days in Ukraine. 
Let's see how. And U.S. advisors serve in almost a dozen Ukrainian ministries and localities, helping to deliver services, eliminate fraud and abuse, improve tax collection, and modernize Ukrainian institutions. With U.S. help, newly vetted and trained police officers are patrolling the, cities, uh, the streets of 18 Ukrainian cities. In courtrooms across Ukraine, free legal aid attorneys funded by the U.S. have won two-thirds of all the acquittals in the countries. Um, Treasury and State Department advisors have helped Ukraine shutter over 60 failed banks and protected the assets of depositors. And since there can be no reform in Ukraine without security, over $266 million of our support has been in the security sector, training 1,200 soldiers and 750 Ukrainian National Guard personnel, and supplying life-saving gear. In FY16, we are continuing that training and equipment of more of Ukraine's border guards, military, and Coast Guard. Well, if that was the uh, US involvement in Ukraine in the early days, getting in amongst the fabric of society into the grain of politics in order to control it for the West, the UK, of course, was right alongside it. So let's have a look at what the UK was up to and we'll do it in a bit more detail. So uh, here we've got uh, women, the key target, of course, of the West, because if the women can be controlled, all sorts of changes can be produced in society. Uh, but what we're interested in here is the UK assistance program in Ukraine in 2017, 2018. This is the tip of the iceberg. What were they after? Well, they were after everything, governance, reform, anti-corruption, accountability and communications, conflict, humanitarian points, human rights, bilateral program, education and culture. And money came in in a variety of dis uh, directions, not huge amounts. But remember, this was the early days and plenty more has followed. And what has the aim been for UK to be able to take control of society in Ukraine? And here we have governance and reform. And uh, it says that Ukraine's successful transition to democracy and adherence to good governance uh, is in the UK national interest. So this is nothing about Ukraine. This is all to do with national interest for the UK. And if we dig into the people they're using to put this in place, we've got global partners. And if we look at the background to this man, he's involved in behavioral change. So this is the applied political psychology. If we go into a different direction, establishing an intellectual property court for Ukraine. Uh, we've got Queen Mary University here of London. We don't know what the involvement is, but just fascinating that they are now looking presumably to control intellectual property. Uh, we've got this one here, which is public financial management. And on this one, we bring in a German organization. It is quite incredible if you look into the debts because you'll see it involves individual German states in getting involved in Ukraine. Um, we've said Barbarossa, German invasion by another means, uh, but something is very, very wrong here. And of course, this is why Lukashenko and the Russians themselves have been very upset with West movement into their areas. Uh, we've got electoral um, points here. And uh, this one is particularly interesting because the agency they're using to deal with it um, involves 
um, nation states. So we've got the US State Department, we've got the UK government, we've got the French, Canadian and the Swiss all getting at a finger in to control what happens in elections in Ukraine. Uh, we've got support to small and medium-sized enterprises and the food chain, bringing in the European Investment Bank. And uh, if you get deeper into the program run by the U European Investment Bank, you'll, you'll see that you're into global banks and the hedge funds very quickly. But the banks are also going to provide ombudsman um, capability for businesses. So we're going to control businesses through the banks. Are they the people to judge businesses? I wouldn't have thought so. And if we move on here, we've got managed funds, governance and economic reform, uh, bring in the big accountancy firm, PricewaterhouseCooper. And of course, wherever there's big money, there's need for big accountancy to balance. Those are big books, but it's all above board and transparent. And of course, nothing unusual going on. So we're told. Uh, if I bring in this one, and this is where we see focus back on the women because we've got promoting women's political participation, the National Democratic Institute involved. Um, if you take a look at that, and I'm going to encourage our audience to do that, uh, you'll find that very, very quickly you're into very high level uh, U.S. government operatives, and not only are they working through the U.S. government, they're working with ambassadors from many other countries. So essentially, we want uh, what we're looking at is rule, rules-based democracy, uh, using women as social change agents to take control in Ukraine. And here we've got another one. This is the EU advisory mission running this one. Um, but this is about security sector reform in Ukraine. And note that very quickly, uh, we are targeting women. We've got the women in the paramilitary uniforms. And uh, this is all part of the uh, same agenda. Last one, difficult to see. It's the invisible battalion. And if we pop this quote up, uh, we get the meat of it. A sociological survey conducted by the invisible battalion team in late 2015 uncovered that outdated legislation allowed women to hold administrative positions such as signals, cooks, tailors and such. But thanks to the research of the unit, the list of combat positions for women for women was expanded. So what was the agenda? To get women out of the home, we don't want them doing anything wonderful with families. We want them on the battlefield fighting. And we only have to go one step further and uh, we come into uh, open democracy, praising the work of this invisible uh, battalion. Uh, so pretty obvious uh, what's uh, actually going on there. And then, of course, the key agenda, LGBTI, that is to be pushed home in Ukraine by the National Democratic Institute again. And uh, we've also got uh, the Swedish uh, International Development Corporation pushing this. So LGTB is a key part now of the West Drive in taking control of Ukraine. And it didn't take me very long to have a look into this to see that that LGBT expertise and initiative was going to include very specialised medical expertise in sex change operations. David, it's pretty obvious that the West has taken control of Ukraine. Ukraine doesn't speak for itself anymore. It's a vassal state. But luckily, there are people at least now standing up to say no more war.
Well, yes, this, this takes us to uh, Saturday and Edinburgh on the Green outside uh, Holyrood Parliament. Uh, this was the uh, rally we were advertising last week, Rally for Peace and Freedom. Uh, so speaking there, as well as ourselves, was David Clues, uh, Peter Ford, Lon Wilson, Colin Buchanan and Alex Pierce. Um, speakers were excellent and we've got a few clips of, of, our, of our contributions. Uh, first, we have Mike being interviewed by uh, We the People Northeast. Do you feel that the world's forgotten biology, or is it going insane? Uh, I think the world is going insane, yes. Uh, I think that um, if, I think if people stop to consider what's going on around them, they, they see it very quickly. But I think that uh, most people, unfortunately, are not willing to stop. They're, they're, they're caught in a hamster wheel of chasing their mortgage payments and, and so on and, and they therefore don't have time now. Of course that may just be an excuse, it may be that they just don't want to, to think about some of these issues because they're scary or they're too scary or they're, they're just things they don't like. Um, so you know, I think this is our biggest challenge is, is, is how we find a way to, to encourage the majority to to engage and if we look at uh, what happened over lockdown uh, a lot more people were engaging on issues over those two years because it affected them directly so you know we might see that as as you know ultra low emission zones get rolled out as as 15 minute cities get rolled out we might see a lot of those people that were active during covid and sort of drifted away in the meantime we might see a lot of those people coming back that's not enough. We need to get, we need to get Middle England. If you, we I hate that phrase, but it, but it, you know what I'm talking about. We need to get the majority of people active. And and next we have an extract from Brian's speech. The, the full speech is on. We the people northeast. So thank you. Thank. We'd like to thank them for the for the footage and for being there and and and, and making this record. Uh, this extract covers uh, Brian's view of how how the Western democracies have been manipulated and the people. Um, changing their outlook so that they support a much more aggressive stance uh, compared to other, uh, with respect to other countries. So the weapon of applied psychology is an open secret that most people have no idea. In the Scottish Parliament, they're using it on you. Every day, on every subject, how you drive, what your children are going to be taught at school, how you're going to pay your taxes, whether you live in a 15-minute city, every document, every video, every statement is put together with applied behavioural psychology so the message goes straight in your head. This is not me making something up. Read the Mindspace document where they boasted how effective it was. And where did they sell it? They sold it, first of all, the technology to America and Australia. Just take Australia. It used to be a really interesting country. They didn't cause much problem. They drank a lot of beers. They had strange animals. And now you've got Australia champing at the bit to get involved in a war against China. Where did that come from? And I'm going to suggest it came from the use of political applied psychology exported from the UK to Australia. Um, and uh, finally, uh, there's a piece for me, and I was looking at what Orwell said and saying how right I thought he was when he predicted that uh, we'd be in a world where 
war was peace, uh, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. Uh, with, uh, with respect to Ukraine, we're told that if we negotiate, that's like Munich, that makes it like war, and we'll bring about World War Three. So if we try to get peace, we end up war. war with, with war, war is peace. Um, this uh, clip is uh, me looking at the issue of whether ignorance is in fact strength. I've discovered during my work with the UK column, it's why, why ignorance is strength. And this comes down to what the West call hybrid warfare, which is a toxic and horrible concept, whereby we're always at war with everybody. Well, certainly with the Russians. It's just a matter of whether the shooting has started or not. Everything's warfare. There's no such thing as peace. It's non-binary. There's no peace and war. It's not a binary anymore. It's a spectrum. You can have a little bit of war or a lot of war, but you're always at war. And everything's a weapon. Right? Your economy's a weapon. Your faith is a weapon. Your beliefs are a weapon. Your ability to be convinced that the government narrative is correct is a weapon. Your ability to be silenced and prevent you objecting is a weapon. And therefore, if the government is, succeeds and ignorance rules in our land, they do see it as strength because it means that none of us can be used by the other countries to undermine their agenda. So the government agenda becomes stronger because people like you are not there saying no. Uh, so that, that's an extract. Please check out the full, uh, the full uh, speeches, including those by Peter Ford uh, and others uh, on uh, We the People Northeast. Okay, David, thank you very much for that. And a very big thank you to everybody that arranged that event up in Scotland and, of course, everybody that attended. It was wonderful to meet you all. Well, as we always say, if you like what the UK column uh, is doing, uh, then please join us. Hopefully I can bring that up on screen. Here we go. And uh, uh, that would be wonderful if you became a UK column member. We can only do what we do with your financial support, but you can also help us by making a purchase through the UK column shop. Exciting things will be happening there uh, in the near future. Uh, we've also got, of course, all of our streams and we invite people to share our material in order to help us to uh, get the word out far and wide. And of course, sadly, we're still uh, banned on YouTube. So these other channels are important. Now, we've got uh, a number of uh, interviews uh, in the pipeline. David, I think uh, you've got a little selection here. Uh, yes, uh, out last week and uh, on the website currently, we have an interview with Ben Rubin, looking at all of the sort of things that, uh, that Debbie's been discussing for, for some months. Uh, and, and years, and this is looking at the, the rise of big data and the genomics industry and how the NHS plays a very special part in what is, is being planned and, uh, and essentially how working in the interests of big pharma, not in the interests of the British people. Uh, okay. We also have um, a, a, an interview that's going out, um, sorry, that went out uh, on Tuesday with uh, the latest part of the interview with Simon Elmer. That will be up on the website tomorrow and uh, being broadcast tomorrow. Um, we have a fascinating interview with the very wonderful Lily Tang Williams, who grew up under Chairman Mao, uh, fled to America and her story and her 
insights into uh, totalitarianism are absolutely fascinating. That was a, an interview we did a little while ago in Edinburgh as she was in, briefly in the country. So it was lovely to meet her and I hope you'll enjoy that interview. It uh, gives a very unique perspective. Okay, thank you for that, David. And I'll say with uh, Lily Tang, this uh, was important to us because we felt we needed a greater understanding of what's happening in China. And that is so difficult to find out unless you can talk to experienced Chinese people themselves. So this is a, a very interesting development for us. Now, we just like to say uh, we're still getting, of course, very nice emails on all sorts of subjects, but it appears that we have got a viewing in Denmark. We've mentioned 15-minute cities uh, before, but this is another email saying thank uh, to the UK column saying thank you for uh, your work. People in Denmark are divided like any anywhere else, I believe. The government are making life outside the cities much harder through new taxis, making small farms and shops close and tightening the rules and the economy for the com communa, making schools and uh, daycare facilities um, close. Uh, more people are waking up, but slowly and too few. Mainstream media is bought and silent. UN goals are being pushed everywhere in buses, trains, schools, libraries and other public spaces. Vaccines are even promoted at the school dentist where children go to the dentist. Prices are rising in Denmark and a lot have doubled in price since 2020. But I think more and more people are coming together in little groups, but nothing organised as we believe we're faced with controlled opposition and fake groups are splitting people apart. I know more people are stockpiling and preparing for uh, self-sufficiency and off-grid matters. Keep up your good work. Well, thank you very much uh, to our uh, audience in Denmark for sending that through. And uh, I'll also just give a little advert here for Debbie Evans' blog, which, uh, as, as you know, is up on the website. Debbie, do you, do you want to say anything about this very briefly? Oh, yes. Antimicrobial resistance this week. Uh, sperm. And are you ready to take your crapsule or drink your faecal milkshake? More on extra too. And if people are shocked by what you've just said, this is the harsh reality. And it's our job to report it and warn the UK public what's really happening. But David, uh, let's bring you back. What's happening in matters to do with the economy? Well, one sort of crapsule to another. Uh, we've got Christine Lagarde. We are here together with policymakers, academics, journalists, market people, observers, and we will compare notes, share expertise, analysis, try to better understand the macroeconomic environment in which we operate. We will have a lot of debates on, of course, what is of high concern to all of us, how do we reduce inflation to target? We will also talk about the ingredients of inflation, energy, wages, profits, you name it. And you can participate. So I would really encourage you to join us on the ECB website. It starts tonight. So there we have it, an invitation by Christine Lagarde to go and listen to the central bankers of Europe and America uh, try to understand what on earth is happening with the economy. And they'll be talking about all aspects of inflation, but apparently not about the central bank's role in causing it. That wasn't in her list. Um, and if you want to see people really not getting it, 
it's a very good place to go. Just as an example, we have Mario Draghi. Today, things have changed. Political winds are becoming tailwinds. There is a newfound confidence in the reform process and a newfound support for European cohesion, which could help unleash pent-up demand and investment. So we've got, we've got pent-up demand, really. And we've got newfound confidence. And the, and the political, political winds are all pushing the economy forward. I wonder what the weather is like on Mario Draghi's planet. Um, and to give you another example of how disconnected we are, here we've got the European Central Bank prediction for inflation. And oh, wouldn't you know, right, in about a year and a half, it will be more or less on target. There's nothing to worry about. Everything's fine. Another central bank, European Central Bank commentary. Housing markets have started to cool. That's what they said. Look at the graph, right? So we're seeing the, the, the market plummet, the price level plummet um, in a way that's very reminiscent of um, the Great Recession back in 2009. Uh, that's, that's their definition of starting to cool if you like to believe that. Uh, and we'll just quickly go on. Uh, and an interesting article in Financial Times, we'll just touch on it briefly, the return of quantitative easing. So this is an article uh, written by um, a, a, a capitalist and an author um, who is um, not buying the narrative from the central banks. So he's saying that the QE is basically baked in. Uh, he continues, integrity of banks and sovereign bond markets are sacrosanct in modern finance. Led by the Federal Reserve, central banks have just injected substantial cash, cash into money markets over recent months to bail out flaky banks. The idea that the banks in the sovereign bond markets are sacrosanct, not the people, that's absolutely vital. You have to understand that. And he continues, in a world of excessive debt, large central bank balance sheets are a necessity. So forget quantitative tightening. Easing is coming back. Um, and he talks all about also about the United States Treasury um, thinking about buybacks and other unconventional policy twists. Um, and then he, he lays this little fact on us. We estimate that a whopping seven in every eight dollars changing hands in world finance markets are now being used to refinance existing debts. Um, an increasing share of the one dollar left over for new financing is to fund uh, swelling government deficits. So actually, we've got massive debt and a shortage of credit for anything actually useful. Um, this chart here, Nick, shows that there's been several attempts to actually reduce the, the, Fed, the Fed's balance sheet, but it hasn't worked. Uh, and basically, they've done nothing on that for about a year now um, in net. And uh, he said that there's not many alternatives to QE uh, because the taxpayer uh, is already squeezed dry. So he concludes, um, how about domestic U.S. households and pension funds? The trouble here is that higher interest rates may be required to entice them into bonds um, when the, the threat of inflation looms large, but higher interest rates boost the fiscal deficit, requiring still larger amounts of debt, compounding the problem. As a joke in Ireland, if you want to travel to Dublin, don't start from here. So this is um, you know, introducing, a, I think, an entirely appropriate note of comedy to the whole thing. This is international finance. It is on the brink of collapse, we will watch it very closely. 
Okay, David, thank you for that. Well, I'll just add to that that I took a little look at the Bank of England, as I like to do. Uh, of course, Mike has already uh, talked about the digital pound and the fact that there's a, the opportunity for people to comment. The deadline is the 30th of June. It was extended, so you can get on the site and have a look at it. But as I dug into it, I found all sorts of other people involved with what was going on, UK Finance and Innovate Finance. Haven't got time to talk to you about that at the moment, but I did stumble about this wonderful little document for the uh, Monetary po Policy Committee for the Bank of England, Communications Guidance for MPC Members. Uh, it says that it, the MPC has a responsibility within the bank for formulating monetary policy. Um, so we know we're on the light, right lines here, but have a look at this. Secrecy. Members must not make statements that might give clues to the developments in monetary analysis that have not been disclosed or that might confuse or mislead the public about monetary policy. So we're too thick to understand it, uh, but they've got a nice little system here that if you play the game and keep your mouth shut, keep that secrecy going, then the payment uh, for keeping secret uh, is extended for the time that uh, t for a period of time after you leave. So I just wanted to throw that in there, David. We've got people making this policy. It's all secret. And of course, the public, well, you're just not bright enough to understand what we bankers are doing. We'll dig deeper another time. But uh, Debbie, let's uh, bring you back. And I think you're on the subject of COVID inquiry. Yeah, well, yesterday, of course, most people will know that Matt Hancock made his appearance at module one, which was preparedness of the COVID inquiry. And uh, lots of excuses uh, came out, as I'm sure you'll see in a minute. But a massive shout out for the Yellow Boards who did an incredible job. They really did an amazing job. And, you know, Abby Roberts, comedian, was arrested for swearing and was detained all night. But we're very relieved to know that she's been released this morning. But please check Twitter, Yellow Boards, and please show her as much support as you possibly can. So just very quickly, let's just remind ourselves of a very emotional Matt Hancock back during lockdown. Just simple words there, reacting it. You're quite emotional by that. Well, it's just, uh, it's been, you know, it's been such a tough year for so many people. And there's William Shakespeare putting it so simply for everybody that, you know, we can get on with our lives. And, and you know, there's still a few months to go. I've still got this worry that we can't blow it now, Piers. We've still got to get the vaccine to millions of people. And so we've got to keep sticking by the rules. But it's just, you know, there's so much work gone into this. And I'm really, really, it makes you proud to be British. He's laughing at us, Debbie. Uh, He's laughing yes. at the public. Yes, he is. So that was the emotional Matt Hancock, who seems to have lost his emotions. Let's see a little bit of his performance. And I say performance at yesterday's inquiry. And if I may say so, I am profoundly sorry for the impact that had. I'm profoundly sorry for each death that has occurred. And I also understand why, for some, it will be hard to take that apology from me. I understand that. I get it. Um, but it is honest and heartfelt, and I'm not very good at talking about my 
uh, emotions and how I feel. Um, but that is honest and true. Um, and all I can do is ensure that this inquiry gets to the bottom of it and that for the future we learn the right lessons so that we stop a pandemic in its tracks much, much earlier and that we have the systems in place ready to do that because I'm worried that they're being dismantled as we speak. Well, we'll come to that in a moment, Mr Hancock. Basically, he was saying there that he wanted lockdowns earlier and basically it should become a part of normal normal life. Um, do you accept his apology? I don't. I certainly don't. Uh, what I think is we need mechanisms in place to stop him in his tracks. That would be the safest thing for this country to do. And perhaps we could start with his constituency uh, to see what could be done there. Well, uh, we're just going to do a little bit more on the subject of, uh, well, it's to do with medicine, really, but it's back with Ukraine. But have a look at what's going on here. Um, uh, this is uh, on the back of a lot of work that Debbie has done looking at Ukraine and what's been happening with the biotech injury, uh, with the, sorry, biotech industry, Freudian slip there. Um, of course, a lot of stuff going on around the war itself. We've got Ukraine uh, being a test bed for Western weapons and battlefield innovation. So the longer it goes on, the more Ukrainians die, uh, the more the West can supposedly improve its own military and military system. So there's lots of areas to this. Uh, we've got another report here, exclusive battlefield communications startup eyes Ukraine as a testbed. Let's get into this war because we can produce more gear and make more sales and make more profit. Uh, we've got Politico here talking about Ukraine becoming a testbed for cyber, cyber weaponry. Uh, so uh, I think we can see very clearly what's happening. Uh, Debbie's mentioned this one before, Ukraine creating a DARPA-like defence research agency. And also uh, the West is in with um, Ukraine or Boronprom, which is their military industrial uh, provider. So the West has got in here to make sure that we can help reform this big military enterprise and no doubt control it. Uh, we've got another agency called NACO, um, which is uh, creating a new ecosystem in amongst that. And if we have a look at the mission, it says that uh, our vision is a Ukrainian defense and security sector that is effective, accountable, and far less susceptible to corruption. Uh, but if we look at the comment on the right, we see that the Foreign and Commonwealth Office of Great Britain has been involved, um, and yet we're running rampant with, <laughs> uh, with everything that we're trying to uh, sort out in, in Ukraine. So corruption running rampant in UK. But not to worry, Ukrainians, we're going to sort your country out. And what better than to have France with us? Because, of course, France is uh, another corruption-free nation. And Sweden also mentioned there. But, of course, uh, what's uh, really in the background is casualties. This is the UN talking about the total number of casualties, um, civilian casualties. And it's really horrible to see the figures. Um, there's 17,000 mentioned in one area area. Um, we've got 15 over, sorry, over 500,000 in Donetsk, um, 4,000 mentioned. There's 
casualties accrued every day in the civilian populations. But of course, nobody wants to talk about the total number of military Ukrainian casualties. I'm putting 300,000 up again to at least give some focus. But what is good about military casualties? Well, you don't want the killed in action because bodies are no good. What you want is the damaged bodies. You want people missing arms and legs and hands uh, because that allows the uh, um, that allows the biotech industry to come in. And here's a virgin advert, superhumans helping injured Ukrainians. So the prosthetics industry, the reconstructive surgery industry, rehabilitation, PTSD, this is all a vast moneymaker if you're in the right uh, industry. And the reports here tell us about it all, uh, including that the First Lady of Ukraine is involved. Uh, we've got uh, Jean Olwang, the founding CEO of Virgin Unite. Uh, we've also got the Not Impossible Labs. Uh, we've got a, um, Mick Eberling, rock musician Sting, and film director Trudy Styler. So this is all big bucks, big industry. And uh, the BBC is in on it as well, uh, because we've got Ukraine war here. I'm going back to the front line with my bionic arm. So, David, I can't see your face at the moment. Let's bring you on, on screen. How horrible does it have to get that the West runs the war, creates the casualties, and then makes more money off the fact that they're strapping bionic arms so men can go to the front and presumably die? Well, it's... Um... Smedley, the uh, general in the United States Marine side war is a racket, and we're certainly seeing that here. Okay, well, I think this takes us on to matters to do with uh, Glasgow. What's been happening? Uh, uh, yes, yeah, so we've got here. Um, this is this is uh, uh, Christina, um, who is our councillor in Glasgow. Um, she's part of the Scottish National Party, and she put forward a, a, a resolution to the council in uh, in the fine city of Glasgow, which reads, uh, Council celebrates the fact that in 2021, Scotland was the first country in the world to agree to embed lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender inclusive education across the school curriculum, and notes as a national expectation that local authorities ensure that all schools are delivering LGBT inclusive education for their learners. Um, Council agrees that LGBT inclusive education contributes to how all young people see themselves, their families and the world around them, and further agrees that this learning should be meaningful, relevant and part of ordinary learning, rather than exceptional siphoned off into a particular calendar months or one-off occasions. So what, is, what she's saying here, she's celebrating, she is uh, applauding the fact that um, a, a, a form of education, which is an attack on the family, we've, we've followed the, the roots of it, is being uh, rolled out across the curriculum, so there's no way for parents to avoid it, there's no way for parents to take their children out of this, and uh, the purpose of the education is to change how young people see themselves and their families and the wider world. It is manipulation of uh, how people think, it's indoctrination, not education, and she's boasting about it. It gets worse, we have here uh, Bailey Elaine Gallagher of the Scottish Green Party, she also had a contribution to the uh, council meeting. This council welcomes Pride Month. Uh, recognises that Pride is the anniversary of the Stonewall riots, the result of 
police oppression and injustice against LGBTQ plus people, in particular drag queens and other gender non-conforming people. I, I think that's rubbish. Um, my understanding of the history of it is not that. As such, the council recognises that, uh, that Pride is a protest against continuing injustice. Again, where's the injustice? She doesn't say. Uh, council recognises that the growing evidence that anti-drag queen and anti-LGBTQ plus sentiment is the result of a small right-wing minority, not the general populace. So you're a Nazi if you don't want uh, sexualised content being, uh, being delivered by drag queens to your small children in libraries, apparently. Council recognises that uh, sentiment is equivalent to the sentiment that resulted in Section 28 and caused severe harm um, and, in, and has become equivalent in some instances to a genocidal threat against trans people. This just hugely overblown language is unbelievable. This is in the Glasgow Council Chamber. The Council also recognises the expanding threat to women's rights that anti-trans sentiment presents with sister, cisgender women, not sure what those are, but she obviously knows, now being victimised for wearing trousers or otherwise not appearing sufficiently female. That's not happening. That's nonsense. These people are not based on reality. They're in a, they're in a completely different world. They've been, you would say, reframed. Um, now, um, people have not been reframed. Uh, the Scottish Family Party went along, very bravely, to the Pride March in Edinburgh on Saturday. And uh, they took a placard and there was a lot of shouting and abuse and swearing at them and pushing and shoving um, because he was holding up this placard. What did the placard say? Uh, it said, uh, statistically, children brought up by the natural parents do best. Um, something that is manifestly true, provable by uh, statistical analysis and not to be seen at Pride March because we don't do truth. Yeah, and I'm just going to add in here, uh, David, what, what you've described to us. This is part of the attack which has gone on to uh, uh, come through uh, the system, politics, communities, families in UK. Now we're seeing the same tools being driven into Ukrainian society, uh, but ultimately uh, for anybody who's gay out there and they think that we are heading into a utopia world where everything is going to be okay. That's not what's coming because, of course, we don't want any form of man or woman existing in any normal form. We are seeing the bio side and the biotechnology coming. So it's very much darker and uh, people really need to concede, uh, consider it. Now, David, um, you've got a s section to end on here to do with Fenethi House and an update. Yes, I was very pleased to uh, to join the the, the ladies, uh, the the Fernetti girls, uh, on a, a visit to Fernetti House in Angus. I've got a couple of uh, photographs here that show the 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 nature of the house. It's a large, um, built in 1915, uh, Scots baronial style mansion, um, your very large property, uh, and it's sitting there in a in a neglected and, uh, and and dilapidated state. The lead's been stolen off the roof and is obviously deteriorating quite a bit. Um, we have here a, a very poignant photograph from the grounds. Uh, this is this is a swing that was uh, was was in in use when the when the the thirty years during the thirty years when the uh, building was used as a residential school um, and somewhat Chernobyl like. It sits here amongst the woods. Um, slowly rusting, 
uh, as a little memory to what to all the children that have been there over the years. And uh, later, when the when the ladies came, uh, they pinned several messages to the front door of the property, and we have just one here. It said, "Age eight and nine years. My sister and me came here the first day it opened. The abuse started from that day onwards, 1961 to 1990. Thirty years of hell." And this is exactly correct. And this is why Fernetti is very important and very special, uh, and that we need a proper full investigation and openness regarding it. The, the Fernetti girls need to know all of the information that's available. They need to know what, they need to know why, and they need full cooperation from government, police, Crown Office, um, city councils, and all the rest of them in order to, uh, to, to give them that information, that knowledge, and hopefully some peace, uh, which will arise, arise from a recognition of what they've suffered. David, thank you very much. Uh, you and the Fenethi team are doing a great job and uh, we can see some interesting responses from the Scottish Government. More on that in future UK Column News uh, editions. Meanwhile, let's end on a couple of images. Um, Debbie, I'm going to bring you on screen. Tell us what you've got. Well, we've got a big fat pig government representing the government squashing the taxpayer feasting off a very rich table saying you need to learn to live with less very poignant i thought the big fat pig i wonder who that could be um and also people have always named children after expensive things mercedes chanel chardonnay this year watch out for electric gas and groceries maybe we should add mortgage to that as well <laughs> Okay. And uh, we've got one more here. Who pays the vaccine fact checkers? Yeah, it looks like the pharmaceutical companies do. I just thought that was a very interesting little meme that people like might like to uh, send, uh, send around because clearly the fact checkers are not who they're meant to be. They're right, funded so by the very people that are promoting everything. Yeah, so we've got factcheck.org, for example, is funded by a foundation that holds over $1.8 billion of stock in a vaccine company. And so it goes on. All right, we'll end on that note. I'm going to say to both of you, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you to our audience, wherever you are in the world. And a huge thank you to all the people who keep the UK column going by financial support, your membership, your wonderful emails, gifts and all the other things that you do for us. We'll end our news today there. We will have an extra time in a few minutes. So uh, if you're a member of UK Column, sign in and uh, join in to that. But we'll say thank you very much uh, to the audience today. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, we will be back at the same time on Friday. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs>